Daniel Gilad is a sound engineer and music producer that has been working in the industry for over a decade. Music for me is about creating relationships through sound. Each piece of music has its own personality, quality, and design. It is a reflection of the artist's soul and a small window to their story. Daniel has provided services for live sound, studio production, mixing, and mastering to some of Hawaii's finest artists. It is my job to be able to translate it and shape it to be shared with the world. Traveling the globe has exposed Daniel to a variety of music, cultures, and relationships. He brings this breadth of perspectives and experiences to his craft and has worked in many different genres, including folk, rock, hip hop, world, pop, sound healing, and meditation. Contact Daniel at dgsoundcreations.com to learn more about how he can help you with your next creative project. dgsoundcreations.com for all of your audio production needs. I am pleased and honored to provide post-production services to What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. This is the 18th episode of season two, and we are super happy to be back on the air, bringing you another series of interviews this winter spring of 2021. With the number of vaccinations increasing by the hour, this is a particularly interesting time to be talking about education. In this second semester, we continue our commitment to bringing you the stories of epic and amazing public, public charter, and independent school teachers who are relentlessly focused on student-driven learning. Learning. Today, my guest is Kale Aarona Lorenzo, a Kumu or teacher of music, culture, and Hawaiian language at the Kamehameha Schools Maui campus. She is the third educator from this campus, including Kui Kaparo and Ululani Shiraishi, that I have featured in this podcast. Kale is considered a legend by faculty and students alike at KS Maui. In this interview, you will find her precise, measured, warm, spiritual, at times conflicted, especially about grades, and deeply reflective. She brings to her teaching all of her head and all of her heart and a lifetime of experience making music. Starting back when her parents were choir members at Kau Makapili Church in Kalihi and continuing today as she nurtures her Hawaiian music ensemble at KS Maui, she connects her life and her music to the Aina, the land she loves. Kalei founded this Hawaiian music ensemble back in 2006 with three students. Today, the group has 48 members, 24 dancers, and 24 musicians. Kalei has taken this ensemble south to places in French Polynesia, where they perform for its president, and New Zealand. She has a bachelor's in music and Hawaiian language and a master's in secondary curriculum and instruction from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She is a graduate of the Kamehameha Schools Kapalama campus back in 1985. 
And now, here's my conversation with Kalei Aarona Lorenzo. Kalei, welcome to the podcast. Hi, aloha no kawa. I'm happy and excited to be talking with you this morning. Awesome. So Kalei, I'm going to divide this conversation up into three parts. So part one will be all about you. And part two will be about your philosophy of education. And then part three, I'm going to call your happy place. Um, so we're going to we're going to jump into part one here, which is about you. So Kalei, I want to start this conversation at Kao Makapili Church, which actually holds a very special place for me. I used to attend the Honolulu City and County open markets there with my brothers, Charlie and Paul. And uh, they sold their their kalo and other cash crops every Saturday morning. And I got to hang out with them from time to time. So your family attended this church and your parents sang in the choir, which is where your musical journey began, more or less. Um, so do I have this right? And then from there, what happened after that? It's funny you mentioned that. So my grandparents were actually caretakers of this um, church, Koma Kapilian. Um, my parents got married there. I got married there. And uh, the open market, that was, uh, I hold that place dear to my heart too, because I would get up early in the morning on Saturdays with my grandparents and they would sell coffee and donuts. Donuts came from Champion mm. um, Bakery across the street. And I uh, I helped them sell, I, I think the coffee was 10 cents and the donuts were 30 cents. <laughs> long time ago. Uh, a long time ago. And uh, my grandparents actually sang in the choir and so did my parents. So my grandparents belonged to uh, Hui Manavale'a and uh, which was a group of kupuna and they, they were all in the choir. And then the young adults, which were my parents, they also sang in their own choir. And we later sang, my husband and I um, as well, we sang in a, um, a youth choir. However, we were already young adults. It, it was interesting how you had the kupuna and then the makua were called young adults. And then we were the younger adults. Mm-hmm. But that is where uh, I played most of my, or I began my musical journey there, uh, singing just in the congregation. Mm. Uh, and then a little at um, in the choir. However, the rest, I guess, of my musical upbringing came from Kamehameha School's Kapalama. Uh, I'm a 1985 graduate. Um, so I, I think I've always been singing. Um, in church and also in school and uh, playing in the band since fifth grade. And I, I played the trumpet and uh, I marched in the Kapalama's um, band. So I was in band all the way through mm. uh, even uh, a year in college, I was still playing trumpet, but I developed a love for playing the, the bass. Mm. So I did my my uh, audition for University of Redlands in California, I did my audition on electric bass. And um, the person who actually helped me uh, to, uh, with my audition piece was uh, Dale Nita. And the interesting thing about Dale Nita is 
when I got the job at um, Maui campus, uh, Kamehameha Schools Maui, um, Dale Nita was there. He was the choir director. And he goes, hey, do you remember me? And I was like, um, I'm not sure. And he's like, I'm the guy who helped you. You know, I was doing my student teaching and I helped you with your bass solo called So Wonderful. Mm. And I was like, oh, my gosh. He goes, I, I had um, I had hair back then. <laughs> but it's, it's it's interesting how uh, in everything I did in music, mm. there was always someone there that I would come into contact with later. Mm-hmm. Kale, what is it about the bass that seemed to resonate with you? You know, so I, I played piano early on. Uh, I think first grade is when my parents put me into private lessons. And then I continued in a class piano at Kamehameha and private lessons there. And whenever I would play a recital, you know, my knees would knock and I would just get so nervous. Mm. And I played guitar a little um, with, uh, it was like this Hawaiian um, ensemble core group from the band. So we would take these trips and I would um, play a little guitar. And I think, uh, uh, you know, we got help on that that particular trip um, from the Cousin Merrill's, uh, uh, Robert and Roland, and Roland was actually one that, hey, you know, Tita, play this, play my guitar, you know, and that's, I think I started to get a different appreciation for Hawaiian music then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wasn't until I started playing bass in the band that I just, there was something about it that I, I felt so confident about my ability that I hadn't felt like that in other instruments. So it just, it it really did speak to me in that sense where it gave me so much confidence that I, I loved everything about it. Uh, and I felt like I could do it well. Mm. And And sort of therein lies almost a meta view of education. Right, is that yeah. your your students? They move through all these different things, and then at some point they connect with something. If we give right. them the opportunity to do that, correct? Yeah. So you attended the University of the Redlands, as you as you just mentioned, for a couple of years, and you had great experiences with the music departments there. But something was missing. You had the music and learning, but you did not have home. So these many years later, Kale, when people ask you to describe, like, you know, the importance of place, quote unquote, where do you begin your response? Like, where does the story of place begin for you? Hmm. That's a... That's a loaded question. <laughs> I, I, I tend to ask those. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's funny because place is more than just a, a piece of land, right? Mm-hmm. So it's for me, I think you, you can't have place without the people. So when, you, when, when I make connections to place, you know, I think of my family home in Kalihi. You know, right in the heart of everything. Um, it, I grew up, you know, in Kalihi for like 30 years before I, I ventured out to, you know, Nu'uanu and whatnot on Oahu and then finally coming here. But I connected with my place in Kalihi because of my grandparents, you know, and then 
um, going to um, spending most of my summers in Paia, which is where my mom is from, and my grandmother and my tutu in that same house, which is where my parents are living right now mm-hmm. on the beach in Paia. But, you know, those connecting to place and people, you know, I re- I remember the growing up with my tutu. And, and so when I think about the place, I think about those feelings and those memories that are attached to that place because of the people that I spent time with there. And that's, I think, what I was really missing when I was at the University of Redlands is I had the music. I loved the music there. Went to Carnegie Hall, did all that, but I was missing the the attachment to people and place, which is only found here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I think I think most folks understand this is kind of a segue to a, a related question. You know, most folks understand the the relationship between music and place. Like, you know, there are regional types of music, for example, or music might be grounded in a life lived in a place, you know, LA, New York, or Louisiana, or, or wherever it happens right. to be. For you, what is the connection between your music and place? And I, I know that's a complicated question as well, but what is, how do you, how do you relate the two and, and um, express that relationship to people that you know? So I, I consider myself to be blessed and very fortunate to you know, have been raised in, in in a family that was, you know, musically inclined. Uh, my my dad's parents, you know, in uh, Kaumakapili Church, singing in the choir, um, hymnals that were in Hawaiian. My mom's family, you know, backyard style, playing music in um, Paoa Valley on Oahu. Hmm. Um, you know, we we had like uh, my my uncle who lived next door. And auntie, they they sang, and my uncle played the pakini bass, and my grandmother played guitar, and um, you know she she would always she she was the one I learned like okay second G and all that stuff. I was like hey, second G, and, and right. I get it, I get it now. You know, I I understand those things, but while I was learning um, or hanging around with her, I just you know watched her hands. But my point is this. I grew up in these places that were, when I came to Pa'ia in the summer, my family would play, you know, my my tutu, my grandmother had, you know, she, it's like she brought that music up here and then auntie and uncle, they sang, my cousin sang. Um, we always had like this rich musical environment, mm. you know, wherever we went, you know, we go to auntie's house, boom, there's music again. Mm. You know, this, so this idea of, Backyard style playing Hawaiian music was always uh, a, a huge thing in my family. So those, when we talk about people and place and and that music that like seemed to connect all of this stuff together to give you that that um, emotional connection, mm-hmm. you know, that's to me that's I think why I feel so passionate about music today is because those memories or those connections that I had way back then, I want to recreate that. Mm. Not not necessarily the music, but the feeling of the music, you know, that wow. that I that I got with my family. Mm. Did your family always play Hawaiian music or were were there other types of music? 
Oh, there are other types. I mean, I think when you when you play music in Hawaii, you're always going to play on what we call that the the oldies um, progression. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, right. we we go through the oldies type of music, but we give it a local flair. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up with you know a lot of the the oldies um, and uh, Hawaiian music, but also the contemporary island. I guess at that time would be like Waimanalo blues mm, and yeah. those types of of songs that um, my grandmother loved. You know, a lot of um, young people today they they're remaking country, and I remember my grandmother she was doing that with Anne Murray and. You know, uh, just mm-hmm. anything she liked, she she brought into this um, kind of localized those the, the music she liked. So it didn't really matter what genre it was. Mm. Um, she made it into her local Hawaiian genre. Right, right. You know, it's so interesting, Kalai. You've just clarified something for me, which is really cool. Because um, as you were talking about you know, the family playing and your association with the place and with the music. I was thinking about, you know, I grew up in Kahalu uh, on the windward side here on Oahu. And um, my, I think my family's version of music was actually the intense Socratic seminar discussions we had around the dinner table. Um, <laughs> nobody played music, not that oh. I know of, but, um, but we used, and so, you know, I'm thinking about how, I associate that dinner table and that house in Kahalu and the view out on the bay and those conversations that happened every single night, no matter what, my father would gather the family up for dinner. Um, and I realized that I, I probably exported that um, away from that place to every other place that I go to, mm. and including in my teaching career. Yeah. So right. I, it's so interesting how you, you make those connections. Um, so... When folks talk about place-based or culture-based learning, where does your mind go? Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure. Are these are these overworked phrases at this point, or are we happy that we're talking so much about that about these ideas of place-based and culture-based learning now? More than ever before, as far as I, I can tell. Well, I think I think many of us we were we were already doing that and not even calling it that, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, but but I also feel that there was uh, another track of disconnect for um, maybe students or families that didn't have the same opportunity. Um, so I am happy that we're we're focusing on that, you know, place-based and culture-based um, because I know there is a disconnect, you know, families not having maybe their kupuna to, to teach them or, you know, moving away because of financial things and just getting disconnected in that sense. So I, I'm happy that we're talking more about it, mm. um, but I didn't, I, I don't think I, I've ever not had that as part of my who I am and what I teach so I my focus was never on it as a separate entity Mm, yep it was 
It's just part of the mesh, part of the whole yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so you you have described a, a lifelong, and, and by the way, thank you, you shared an interview uh, that you did um, with a music professor um, out of um, uh, Michigan, um, I believe, if I've got that right. Um, and I, I read through that. And so you've described um, a lifelong sense of urgency to save the Hawaiian language. And I, I resonate with this, Kalei, because while at the University of Iowa, I came face to face with my own heritage, which is Welsh, and the history mm -hmm. of how the English tried to eradicate the Welsh language and make the Welsh people English. Um, and so my question is about teaching and learning. So most students, I believe, learn a language because it might help them during a future career, like, you know, learning Chinese or Japanese, for example. Um, it feels to me that the desire to speak and read and think in Hawaiian is grounded in other maybe less materialistic goals. So how do you approach all this with your students at Kamehameha Schools Maui? Well, you know, I've always been taught, I guess, that language is the key to one's culture. And having uh, many of us be disconnected to that culture, that language is so important and key to you know, finding out how to connect back to, you know, things that we we lost or that we're missing in our lives. But for me, it was very personal. Uh, as a student at Kamehameha Kapalama, I, I didn't realize when I was in Hawaiian, uh, in Hawaiian language classes, that my grandparents were native speakers. Mm, like wow. I grew up, I grew up in, in this home with my grandparents and I didn't even realize they were native speakers until I was maybe a junior in high school and I I also didn't realize that I had so much vocabulary in the language that I didn't even realize that that was Hawaiian <laughs> it was just the language of the home and you know when I when I started realizing all these things and that and that moment, I I was working on a, a prayer, a pule, mm. um, for school, and my grandmother said, "What are you doing?" <laughs> I said, "Oh, Grandma, I, I need to write this pule for school." And you know, she said, "Oh, let me help you." So she started speaking, and you know, she's helping me, and I'm like, "What?" And the, it was at that moment that she started to open like. She opened the door literally and shared with me all these stories, you know, about uh, her grandmother being a chanter in Kalakaua's court and um, sending a limo when he was sick to the home. And the limo at that time was horse and buggy. <laughs> right. And, you know, she would come and chant for him. Wow. You know, as just a healing. And I, all these things, you know, it's like a, you know, if you're in a in a uh, dry bed stream and then the water starts, <laughs> yeah, flash flooding, flood, like, yeah, right, like how we had in Haiku, and I, I'm like, what is going on? You know, mm. and so when I when I talk about that sense of urgency, it's it's that. Mm. Like if I was missing all of this, what about the the rest of you know? What about my students? What about my my peers? My colleagues who 
who have similar stories. I mean, how? So for me, it's it's very personal. It's not just a language that I I learn and I teach in the classroom, but something that can mm. unlock these these doors maybe that have been locked for years mm. that mm. will give little insight as to um, who we are or where our our kupuna have walked and mm-hmm. you know and this really is how I teach you know so when it comes to grades it's 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 very challenging for me to to teach with a grade in mind because I, I don't have that mm-hmm. as my goal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we're gonna get into that a lot in part two <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know one of the other things about about language that really struck me as I was thinking this part through was the idea that, and one of the things that I learned as I did my deep dive independence study at University of Iowa was that the way to bring a language back, when when a people fight to bring a language back, it's not just about teaching it in school, it's actually about implementing it into the everyday processes of life. If you, in Wales, one of the major victories, Calais, was that they got um, Welsh back as the language for getting your driver's license renewed. Um, you could do it both in English and in Welsh, and that was a major victory for the return of the Welsh language. So um, my question is about in what in what ways do you explore those kinds of things with your students as you're working with them to become proficient in the language? You know, I... When it comes to teaching language and and just being around uh, Olelo Hawaii, I don't consider myself to be like the most. Or uh, there are there are others that are far, um, you know, have more ike than I do um, when it comes to the language. Flu- I think fluency. You mean? Yeah. Um, or it's just. I mean, I, I think we we are each proficient in the language when I talk about my colleagues and but we we just have other like our forte is different, right? Mm-hmm. And my my forte, I think, or the, the area in which I um consider to be the most confident in is Hawaiian music. Mm-hmm. And this is the the thing that I I use, I guess, to to provide uh that foundation for my students to let's talk story through music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that that's where I think if I'm, if I'm confident about what I know and what I'm teaching them or providing for them, then they can latch onto that faster. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so this is the, the, this, this is like my playing field when I, when I bring the music aspect into it and then I share my, um, my stories of, of, of my interactions, I guess, with people through the language. Mm. I don't know if that answers the question. It, it does, and I'm sure <laughs> what they pick up is that is that sense of um, urgency um, that comes from you. How much you, how deeply you care about this and about the connection between language and music, and that if that's who you are and that's the way that you live your life, then your students are going to, almost like osmosis, are going to receive that energy from you, it feels like, right? Yeah, I, I think 
you need to be as uh, authentic as you can and, and know who you are and also know your limitations. So maybe I'm not, um, I won't, I'm not that like researcher. I don't, maybe I don't have the, um, the higher level grammar or, you know, there's there's um, scholarly levels. I think of Olala Hawaii. I don't think I'm quite there. I I I consider myself to be well rounded in in the different aspects of Olala Hawaii, but I might not be your um, you know pukui in terms of Olalo Noel or wise sayings. And so I I try and stay within my realm of where I'm most confident to to bring the most impact, I guess. Mm, Got it. Got it. That's very cool. Hey, everybody. Let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest. Kale Aarona Lorenzo is a kumu, a teacher of music and language at Kamehameha School's Maui campus. So, Kale, in part two, which is about your philosophy of education, um, I, I studied your philosophy of education page online for quite a while. Um, And I I mean no disrespect when I suggest that there are teachers who have a philosophy of education and those who don't. Um, I, for one, did not have one until quite a ways into my teaching career. Um, So when did you begin to develop your philosophy of education and what were some of the highlights of of that journey along the way? You know, it's interesting because I never thought about it either <laughs> until I had to uh, create my resume to uh, move to Maui and to apply um, for the position at the Maui campus, Kamehameha Maui. I had been teaching for 12 years um, prior at Kapalama. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until then that I started to think heavily about what is my philosophy and did I have one? Hmm. And, um, you know, I, I consider myself a pretty simple uh, minded person and it's hard for me to think deeply without, um, thinking about who I am as, as a person. I grew up in the church. Hmm. So everything I know and everything I am, is with Keakua as my center, um, to, to have God as my center. Um, so uh, we were always taught God is love. Yeah, aloha Keakua. Mm-hmm. And so I think that really is my philosophy, is, is having aloha all the time, every time. And if you lead with aloha, or you have love in your heart for what you're doing and who you're with, uh, then, then you can share your manao, mm-hmm. and and it'll be authentic and genuine, and and that's my foundation. So everything is based on on that, um, and not not so much the curriculum and the content of what I teach, but if mm-hmm. I have that sense of aloha for whoever I'm talking to, and when I when I teach, I, I think I, I think of that as a conversation mm-hmm. between me and the student on whatever it is where, you know, whatever the content is, it's, it's, we're talking story about this thing and let's find 
this out together. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but having that having that foundation of aloha and that mutual respect for one another, I think mm-hmm. that's the that's mm-hmm. what um, keeps us glued together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And along the journey, do you find yourself? You know, in moments where you're realizing that your philosophy of education is is grounded in in bedrock, and yet at times fluid and changing because of changing circumstances um, in your life and and you know your time with the kids. Um, I think my philosophy is always the same: to have aloha and to have compassion and. Mm-hmm. The sense of mutual respect, but I feel that I'm so much better as a teacher today because I am learning how to um, to adapt to change by reflecting on what I do and to listen to my students and what they need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Actually. Kale, that's the perfect segue <laughs> to my next question. Um, so my nephew, uh, Evan Beachy, uh, Rapun, Evan Rapun Beachy, who works in strategy and transformation at Kamehameha Schools um, and who knows you well, told me um, <laughs> that you are a, a master at reading children, at re- <laughs> reading the room and at pivoting and adjusting. So let's say that I'm a young teacher impressed by these qualities that you have and these skills that I see in you. Um, and I want to take some small steps to being um, a little bit more like you, if you will, in terms of that ability to read kids and read the room and, and the ability to adjust. What what are these small steps that I could take? Hmm. Oh, I don't think I... Uh, that's a that's a tough question. <laughs> it's kind of a coaching question, you know. If it, you it is. if you enter um, into a coaching relationship with somebody, um, and they ask you that question, it's sort of like, hmm, how do I start with something like that? Yeah, yeah. I I think, you know, the lens in which you need to look through is is has many facets mm-hmm. that. Uh, it's a it's really really paying attention to nonverbal cues mm. uh listening to whispers i mean there's there's so much that i think goes on when i walk into a room or when a student walks into my classroom that you you need to look at the unknown of that person when they come in you know how are they walking in Mm-hmm. Um, uh, do they have a smile on their face? You know, with, with masks now during this um, yeah. or this pandemic time, I mean, you have to pay even closer attention to to the body language. Um, and when you assign things, you know, are you are you just talking? Like when you lecture, are you just talking mm. to like the room, or are you speaking to a particular student. And I think those are, um, we often as teachers, I think just, just talk about, you know, we start like, it's almost like we're preaching. Yeah, <laughs> We're preaching about the subject matter, but 
are we really looking at the faces of our students? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's yeah. I, I think that one that one takes a takes a lot of time, but it's also paying attention to everything and mm-hmm. not letting one thing pass you by. Mm-hmm. I think that that's you know when I look back, my first um, stint as a teacher was at Punahou, and this was back in the '90s, and. I remember very clearly that I was not reading the room and I was not reading the kids. And I think it might have been because I I didn't have to. I was the deliverer, the preacher of the gospel. Yeah. And it didn't yeah. matter to me what state they were right. in. They had to receive it no matter what. When yeah. I when I moved to La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls and I was in much smaller classrooms. Uh, that's where my shift took place. Like then I really started to read the room and read um, the young women who are coming into my classroom. And oh my, what a change. Um, you know, all of a sudden it became, we became a community rather than, um, you know, um, a place where you came to be filled up with information. Um, that was a, that was a dramatic shift for me. Yeah, I, I definitely think that um, I've been through so many different experiences and it's always the ones where, you know, you can't reach, like for me, it's when I can't reach a student that it just, mm. it tears me up inside. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's when I, um, I start to focus more, mm. you know, it's because I can't like, the, the person that I am, I can't let it go. Mm. You know, I, I see that as a, a, a failure if I can't reach a student. And so I start reflecting and analyzing more of what I do and what am I missing or what am I not seeing? Um, and I think that's that's really important if you want to make those connections with your students, mm. that you have to constantly analyze you. And what you're giving them or what you're providing for them. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. So slight shift in direction, but more sort of technological. Evan, Evan also uh, told me that you're a, an early adopter of education technology, such as Canvas and, and Screencastify. <laughs> um, and... And so, and the reason why I was telling me this is because, again, it's referencing that adaptability that you have, the, your ability to pivot in particular moments. So what are your thoughts, Clay, about these tools in terms of capturing student learning? Like what, how do these tools mesh with your philosophy of education? So first of all, I'm a geek. <laughs> I'm a nerd. <laughs> I'm such a nerd. <laughs> it's 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 funny because I just I get into that stuff. Like I like technology and um, you know, math was one of my fortes in in high school and uh in college and I tutored math and I that's the kind of person I am is music and, and math. Mm-hmm. Um so I I like technology. Um, but I found that I needed something to help me, you know, and I, um, you know, Kelly Kua, I think she, uh, or even before I moved to the uh, Maui campus, I started doing web design and, mm-hmm. 
you know, I would actually build websites at Kapalama and that's just the geeky side of me. But I think I always try to look at ways to capture student learning in a way that was uh, more appealing to me and to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't just read. I'm not, I don't, I research a lot. So I read through research, but I'm not, I don't like reading. So I always try to find different ways to like bring video in and mm. so forth. So having that, when I, when I came to the Maui campus and um, talked to Kelly Kua and tried to do flip classrooms to um, find ways to spend more time with students while we were in the classroom and putting content, you know, using uh, Canvas or um, um, QuickTime videos and, you know, whatever it took, like the, the mm. screen capitalizing and screen flows and to do tutorials and whatnot. I think all those came out of trying to find time to not only capture student work, but also to provide ways to have students um, work on their own independently while I talk to them in class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so finding more time to have personal connections in class, mm-hmm. providing work um, in, in its like flipped form right. so that we can free that time up in class. Right, right. Wow. That's just so, is that so interesting? Um, so, so, okay. So continuing on kind of in this vein, and and Clay, this next part really, I think you might consider me completely insane um, for asking you this. But look, as as nutty as this sounds, like you you shared a folder with me that had a whole bunch of information in it, including all of your transcripts from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Um, and I spent, and this is my geeky time, right? I spent a, a fair bit of time diving into your undergraduate and graduate records um, that were there. And you earned a lot of high grades. But what really got me thinking were the courses, psychology, sociology, chemistry, where at least based on your grades, I don't know anything about your your motivation, um, you seem to struggle. So here's my here's my question. <laughs> you're like you're you're thinking. I know you're thinking like, wow, this is crazy. Um, so I'm struck by the idea that beyond how hard you worked in your <laughs> in your many undergraduate and graduate courses, these these transcripts reveal little about you, your skills, your habits, your dispositions, your head, your heart, the work of your hands. So what are your thoughts about this? <laughs> okay, so well, get, getting to those grades. <laughs> I want to talk about those grades because they're, they're I think, um, they are pieces that, I guess, um, helped me to stay focused mm. and, and also provided empathy for students. Um, and helped me to maybe um, be a better coach for students of things to do and not do when mm. they're in college. Mm. So I over I overloaded every single semester. I think it sure looked and, like it. <laughs> yeah, and um, there were a few classes. I think psychology. I did unit mastery, which basically is you just do it on your own. You read the book on your own and you take the test. Yeah. 
And I, I think uh, I left it till like two weeks before the <laughs> end. And I did half the course in those two weeks. And by the time I came to that last day, I was like, okay, C is fine. I got to move on. <laughs> I, have too much, I have too much things to do. Um, so that was definitely a, a learning experience where I, I realized that this is not the way to go. Like, what did I learn in the end? Did, did, I, did I learn anything or did I just learn how to read a book fast and take tests? You know, so I, I, I think that was a great experience for me mm-hmm. because it helped me um, to bring that knowledge into my teaching of how to, you know, teach kids about mm here are some things that I don't think you should do because, you know, um, so I, I mahalo that experience. Um, there was another course though, sociology. I think that's the one I use a lot. Like I talk about that experience a lot and I'm not afraid to share that experience with my students mm-hmm. on how, how a summer course um, in which I spent hours, you know, I, I think I had five books of notes. Like I took, I took notes massively. Now I took notes. I, I could tell you so much. Meaning I learned so much from that class hmm. on, on what I took away from the from what the professor was saying and what I put in my notes. However, every test, and there were only two. Two tests, 40 questions, 40 multiple choice questions. And um, that was your grade for the course. Yeah. And it had nothing to do with any of my notes. It was just straight from the book. So I, I also mahalo that experience because that taught me of what I don't want to be mm-hmm. as a teacher. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any connection with that professor at all. He preached. And I learned so much from him, from his notes, but not from him as a person. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I think that that drives me today to um, to realize what's important in teaching is that sense of aloha mm-hmm. and building relationships with your students so that you can provide them access to um, not just receiving knowledge, but applying that knowledge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if I answered your question at yeah, all. Yeah, <laughs> no. And, and you know what I'm, what I'm thinking about is that if, if we were to take this segment and just cut it into a segment and attach this audio clip to your transcript, it would explain why you graduated with distinction because of who you are. And that's that's my struggle, Kale. And I've done multiple exercises around this. I've showed Ted Dintersmith's film most likely to succeed to small selected audiences and asked them after the film is over to spend an hour reimagining the 21st century transcript. Like what does it what does it look and sound and feel like to be able to account for oneself um, away from just these these 
course names and credits and grades, right? And so, you know, when when we talk about you graduating with distinction, that's a big story about you. <laughs> and I think that's kind of the point in education is that we have to make time and make room and make space for kids to be able to express their stories. But that's that's a huge reimagining of even the way that we go about teaching and learning, which is which is you know huge. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you one more question, related question to this, um, and then we'll take a quick break. So continuing on this subject of grades, um, I noticed that you have a, and you've already talked about this a little bit, a traditional grading structure in the various syllabi you shared with me of your classes that you teach. So in what ways has your philosophy of education run into challenges when it comes to these structures around grades, um, particularly, by the way, during this pandemic year? Yeah, so I've never really been a fan of grades. Uh, I don't like the way that grades drive, you know, learning. And uh, I don't like the timeline of things. So, you know, we mm -hmm. students, we all learn at different times, right? You know, you know, some of us, we can learn the same information in two hours, others maybe two weeks. And I like to provide time for students to learn on on their time, as long as they're showing me that that they are trying, right? That they are um, trying to make sense of this information that they're getting. Mm -hmm. um, so I think in this, especially now in this pandemic time, I've I've looked more towards reflective, um, you know, you, you tell me what you tell me what you've learned from this or uh, finding different ways in which to honor student learning. Um, so the, definitely using reflective um, pieces in the grading um, to honor student learning. Mm -hmm. I, th I think I'm, I'm doing that more. I don't know. I think the this pandemic has really focused me to look at timelines and and knowing that students are on different timelines. So I've opened up grades. I don't, I don't really know how to describe that. Um, but whereas, you know, hey, hey, you have to finish A and then B and then C in this order. Mm, yeah. <laughs> like this semester, especially, I was just talking to Evan about that. I, I, I opened up all the modules. <laughs> mm -hmm. so if they wanted to jump around, they could. Um, I've also said that, you know, we're going to be looking at this in about a month. But hey, if you have time during the break, if you want to like check it out, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, just for some of them who need more time. And I've already seen some students dive into some of that. Mm. And I think that's great. You know, so I I'm always one to honor the work before the the timeline of the grade. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like if I can provide more time for students to show me what they can do, then I'll give that time mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I just want to share a quick story before we go to break. Um, you know, back when I was teaching at La Pietra and I was teaching APUS history, 
which, you know, along with the other AP courses is arguably one of the worst grinds that you can put any kid through. Um, it's 400 years of history in, in one year, um, a mile wide, uh, an inch deep. And I remember at some point, Kalei, I just got so frustrated. I was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to teach the course backwards this year. Um, so I started at the end, which at that time was mm. the election of Barack Obama. And I started working my way back towards what used to be the beginning of the course. And the timeline suddenly became totally fluid. Like mm. the, it was as if you were driving in a car, going backwards into the past, but the rearview mirror that you're looking in is actually the future where you've already been and what you already know. Um, and so you you suddenly become very keen to the idea that you're discovering the origins of things rather than, um, you know, learning about a particular event and then moving on and forgetting about it, right? Um, right. And I, I just, so I'm so impressed with the way that you pivoted and began thinking about time and about um, potentially the reordering of things, things always being A, B, C, and D, but you give it over to the kids and go, well, maybe you don't have to do it in that order. And they go, oh, maybe C makes more sense before A. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, okay. If that's the way you see it, you know, that's super interesting. Um, anyway, you've clearly got my brain fired up here. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, hey, everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Kalei. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. everyone. This is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Kalei Aarona Lorenzo, a music, culture, and language educator at Kamehameha Schools Maui campus. 
So, Kalei, this is um, part three, which I'm calling Your Happy Place. Um, <laughs> so, a couple more questions for you in this last section. Um, back in 2018, the Stanford Talisman Group, which is an a cappella group at Stanford University, uh, founded in 1990 to, to sing music that tells cultural stories that often went untold on Stanford's campus, they visited your Kamehameha School's Maui campus. And you shared a short documentary film with me called The Ulu Tree um, that I am completely happy to admit got me totally choked up in about 10 seconds after I started the film. Um, so if you can tell our radio audience about this campus visit and about what it meant to your students. Well, it's it was really interesting how we made this connection hmm. because it was a former student I had in a Hawaiian ensemble who was attending Stanford. And he emailed me and said, or texted me, I think he sent me a text and he said, hey, Kumo, uh, I have this friend and, you know, she's part of this, she, she kind of is the student director for this group and, uh, you know, they sing a cappella and uh, they're coming to Hawaii and, you know, so he, he went on and on and and then he said, are you, you know, are you open to a talking story with her? And I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. So she emails me, explains this whole thing. I said, yeah, no problem. <laughs> so come up to the school and, you know, had um, her cameraman there. And uh, we got together, our Hawaiian Ensemble kids and uh, and their group. And our kids just took them around and taught them, <laughs> taught them a song and a Remember, I'm teaching at this time, so I'm not, I don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So it was funny how things evolved just through the kids. Mm -hmm. And then we, then we met formally and um, they had a concert and uh, I think we opened for them. And then after the day um, was done, then we uh, hung out together and the, the kids started singing together with them. And oh my. it was, it was a really, really, um, rich experience because um, they learned, you know, songs from Hawaii to share at the concert that had our kids just like, wow, that was cool, you know, and that, I guess that's where they um, mm -hmm. started to share more about who we are and what we do. Mm. I think one of the things, there's so many things about this that were fascinating to me, but one of the things that really jumped out was even just the idea uh, of the talisman group itself. I mean, you could think about, and you've been through this, right? Because you you founded the the Hawaiian Ensemble. Um, that here I am. Let let's say I'm at Stanford and I want to start an acapella group, and we could just start an acapella group, and we could start singing. But that small step that you take to shift the focus of the group to telling these cultural stories that are untold on Stanford's campus, like to me, that's a massive innovation within a very small step that you take. And I, I guess what I'm wondering is the extent to which your kids were tuned into that idea. Yeah, I I definitely think that um, they, it was very intriguing for them to, to see 
not just that these the student group was you know they directed themselves um and they each played a part in in the story mm. you know that like each of them came up with hey let's do this you know they each had a voice i think that was an important thing about that group that resonated with our students is um the fact that it was like each of them had a okay we have a connection here we're going to tell this story mm. you know at I, th- I think that was the, the powerful thing about that group in that they were not only um, extremely gifted individuals who had different, you know, they they had different, uh, they were in different areas of academia. Okay? Like we have some, uh, I think, chemistry science majors in there and then there were some mathematicians and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they 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 had different walks of uh life and yet they all sang mm. and so they each had different like academic stories right but also their cultural stories they they each of them took like a a different part of who they were like a korean story and mm. you know uh and they brought that to the table I think that's where our kids really, they could see themselves in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you were going to construct an empathy project, that's, yeah. it, that's it, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. when you're telling other people's stories, you have to walk right. in their shoes. I mean, right? wow, that's just, that's so, that's so amazing. Um, okay, so um, Kalei, this time has gone by super fast um, and it's been absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I have, I have one more uh, question. It's kind of a big one um, um, to ask you. So I want to return to your Hawaiian music ensemble um, and the website that you built for it. And by the way, super intriguing uh, Intriguing that your geekiness extends to building websites. Like that wasn't oh. something that I completely expected, but... So um, I can't take credit for that one. That's a professionally done one by another teacher who, um, who one day told me, hey, Clay, I think we need a... a I think we need a different because we have a student website that, yeah. and we we also have this quote unquote um, business corporate website. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yes. Um, so anyway, your your headlines at the site are discover the music of Polynesia, quality <laughs> quality meets entertainment, where mm-hmm. music uh, meets culture, and voices of the past, leaders of the future. So. Back a few years ago, I brought Ted Dintersmith, author of What School Could Be, which is the book that inspired this podcast, um, to the Wainai Sea Rider program. And what really caught us by surprise was Candy Suiso's EduPrize initiative, which fused entrepreneurship and enterprise and commerce and maker mindsets um, and learning into a, a business model that supports Sea Rider Digital. And for them, they mm. focus on certain products like T-shirts and things that kind of put the hashtag Wainai Proud um, message out there, right? So it looks to me like you um, and your teammates have constructed something similar to this, meaning folks can book your ensemble for their gatherings and parties. Like, so um, am I reading this right? Like, how does it work? And <laughs> yeah. what are the kids, how are the kids involved in the process? So we travel a lot. Um, every two years, we take an international trip and we focused on uh, Tahiti and Aotearoa 
as our main, um, like we, we continually go back to these places and um, reestablish our, our bonds with those, um, those students and those um, teachers that we've met there. Uh, so to go on these trips, many of our, um, our students, you know, are, um, need financial assistance. Mm -hmm. And so we do fundraisers and initially we never thought it would be like this until people started donating money. Mm -hmm. And then they asked the, you know, corporate, um, uh, groups would call and say, Hey, you know, we have this thing. Do you think you can do this? And we'll pay you this. And we're like, Ooh, that's a lot. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe that's much, you know, I don't know if we're like worthy of that, mm. but we started doing these, like, our, I think our biggest gig w was, um, uh, with IBM. Wow. Now we, you know, our kids sang on stage with, uh, Idina Menzel and, um, it was just, you know, Ron Howard was there and the, the kids didn't even know who Ron Howard was. <laughs> Ron Howard, do you guys not know Happy Days? By the end? <laughs> um, but it, it, it started from there. You know, we, uh, we needed to, um, prior to this, I, I was getting calls, you know, or emails. Um, So-and-so would call this, hey, you know, why don't you call Clay up and see if their group can like perform it, you know, this thing. Then, uh, the bottom line is we just wanted to share our music. Mm -hmm. It wasn't driven by money or driven by fundraisers at all. It was just, you know, so-and-so calls us up. Um, hey, we have a baby party. And we say yes if we can do it. And it's basically call the kids up, see if they can do it. We, you know, we have student officers mm -hmm. for the group and they decide, you know, if they're free, if we can get a good group together mm -hmm. to be able to perform and provide quality music mm -hmm. and, and dance, because this is a, you know, now we have over 45 students, I believe, almost 50 students, mm -hmm. um, 25 singers and musicians and 25 dancers, roughly around there um, by audition. Um, and audition only because it's a traveling group. So it's really difficult to take even 50. Mm -hmm challenging but um you know we we try and provide this opportunity for students to to travel out and to share their music mm -hmm. wow i i watched so many of the videos that you shared with me on the various sites of the performances um and it just like i don't even know how to describe it it you know to say it warms your heart is a is a huge understatement um, and especially when you pay really close attention to their expressions when they're singing or dancing or playing, um, you can see the extent to which their hearts are in it. Um, mm. and, and that's a, it's a very, very special thing. Yeah, I definitely, um, it's, it's a, it's a family, <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's been challenging uh, for us in this past year yeah. because of the singing and dancing and not being able to um, perform like how we normally perform. You know, we did do a, a Kupa Akako series that's on Facebook and YouTube mm -hmm. back in November. Uh, yeah, I watched that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and that was, you know, the students were so happy to perform again, mm. but singing 10 feet apart, um, that was difficult. You know, um, they couldn't, it was, from the students' perspective, it was as if they were singing by themselves. Yeah. And and that was really, really challenging, but the opportunity to perform again in yeah. this family unit um, was huge for them, and they just mahalo every mm-hmm. moment that we can spend together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've definitely seen some wildly creative things happen during this pandemic with regard to music and the arts and culture. But you can also feel, you know, part of the energy that people are feeling about coming back together again as as these vaccination uh, protocols get rolling is, you know, very much in the arts and culture is being able to come back together again because um, it just doesn't quite compare, right? Yeah, Yeah. right. So, Kale, thank you for this time today. I, okay. I I wish you and your extended family good health as we navigate towards hopefully the end of this pandemic. And it's been very special to have this hour to dig deep into who you are and your philosophy of education and the things that make you happy. Um, so we appreciate you and we appreciate your time. Oh, mahalo nui. This podcast is inspired by the book, What School Could Be. To join the What School Could Be community, and man, oh man, what an incredible community it is, go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or download the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. If you love these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders, please give us your own rating and write us a review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original theme music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his Facebook and website URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send your feedback to mltsinhoi at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mltsinhoi. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Please stay safe, wear a mask, stay physically distant from one another, and get vaccinated when it is your turn. Most of all, please bring kindness and compassion into the world. The gods only know how much we need both right now. See you soon.